Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Yep, you heard me right. There's plant chemicals like carotenoids, phenols, antioxidants that are taken up by livestock when they're grazing on grasses actually become concentrated in the meat and the milk. My guest today, expert Dr. Stefan Van Vliet from Duke University is going to take us on a deep dive around this whole topic of unprocessed meat, phytonutrients, and the impacts on our overall health. It is a fascinating discussion. Make sure you don't miss it. Stefan, really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Yes, thanks so much uh, for having me, uh, Mark. I'm excited. Yeah, well, listen, I think, uh, you know, listeners are going to be really excited about the topics that we're going to dive into, you know, a lot of nuance uh, to unpack and really fascinating research that you're doing. But before we jump into that, maybe can you tell us a little bit more about your background and, and how you got to your role? Absolutely. So I graduated as an Aspen Fellow from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, I did my PhD in, in kinesiology. A lot of our focus was on, on protein metabolism, muscle protein metabolism, particularly in, re- in response to whole food ingestion. That field uh, it was mostly studied in response to isolated protein, so I focused heavily on that. Mm-hmm. After that, I had postdoctoral training. Uh, within the Center for Human Nutrition at the Washington University of School of Medicine in St. Louis. And since two years, the last two years, I've been at uh, Duke University School of Medicine. And it's really here where my research focuses heavily on on, on the, the nexus of agriculture and medicine. So I'm trying to combine these two fields, looking really at food production systems, whole food sources, the, the whole food matrix and, and the complexity and the, and the nutrients that they contain and how they impact uh, human metabolic health. And in my work, I work together with uh, with farmers and ecologists, agricultural scientists, but also uh, medical doctors. Yeah, I mean, it is just an absolutely fascinating area because this is, you know, for someone who's passionate about nutrition and human health, you know, to sit in a position that you're in where these things are all coming together is is really fascinating. And it's sort of the future of being able to prevent yeah. a lot of these chronic conditions, right? I, I agree because being at a medical school, I always uh, feel like we're, we're studying most of the, and, and treating people with diseases that are rooted in dietary origin. And instead of doing it after the fact pharmacologically, I think we should look the other way and look at the way that we produce our food and maybe we can improve that and improve our production systems and obviously also our, our dietary quality. But it makes a lot of sense, at least for me, to, to combine these two fields, fields, agriculture and medicine, because that's ultimately uh, what we're after, right? Like treat, yeah. treat it uh, prophylactically rather than pharmacologically afterwards. That's just it, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot cheaper to do it if you just prevent it from happening in the first place. And even before we jump in, I'm curious, you know, being European and obviously the, the food systems in Europe, you know, very different than North America, you know, myself being from Canada. You know, yeah. are there any initial reactions when you first came over to the U.S. or, or, or things that, that come up now when you, when you think about the different systems? Yeah, no, I'm definitely thinking about, uh, I grew up in the Netherlands and we're very heavily on, uh, on dairy production and, and also have a lot, of, uh, a lot of that going on. And where I grew up, we, we grew, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up uh, near, uh, I mean, I would ride my bike. That's what we do in the Netherlands. I ride my yeah, bike for a couple of minutes <laughs> and, and, nice. and I'll be in, in farmlands and always uh, seeing cows on pasture. And, and I also would uh, buy my milk from local farmers and things like that. And in, in the Netherlands, for instance, to give you an example here, in the Netherlands, it's very common, and, and by law, our Gouda cheese, which is world famous, right? Yeah. 
in the Netherlands. My if wife you eats have, it all the time, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And traditional Gouda cheese, for instance, here in the Netherlands has to be made according to a traditional recipe. You cannot pasteurize the milk, for instance, to make it. Yeah. Whereas here, for instance, in, in the U.S., it's it's like Go, uh, gotta do it right. Yeah, exactly. So these these are definitely different uh, systems. Uh, that so it, I mean, it's good to look at this from uh, I guess. Uh, that's one advantage looking at it from a European standpoint and the U.S. standpoint, where you get uh, these different systems, and uh, yeah, it gives you an open mind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how just having it, being able to view things from a different lens, even if it doesn't contribute large amounts to what you're doing, it's it's you're able to just see things slightly differently, which can make all the world of difference when you're you know, trying to solve some of these complex problems. And you know, diving into your work around meat, dairy, we we typically think of of micronutrients and key micronutrients, calcium, vitamin D, iron, these types of things. When we think about the benefits of consuming these foods, yeah. we don't tend to think about phytochemicals when we think about these foods. Can you talk a little bit about that, the, the phytochemical side? Absolutely. So in, in our work, we use uh, uh, metabolomics approaches, which is basically allows, allows the researcher to look at a broad variety of, of metabolites that are in, in various food sources. And then we, we go on to feed people these food sources and, and look at their metabolome profiles, either postprandially or after several weeks of consumption. So and what we found here, and especially when we started to, uh, to uh, several farmers too, is that uh, yeah, we found a lar- large variety of phytonutrients in, in these uh, food sources, in this case in, in meat and in, in dairy. And what we found was is that when animals graze on, on very phytochemically diverse pastures, that a lot of these phytonutrients do get uh, uh, incorporated into the meat and milk. And it is interesting because obviously we have usually have a very reductionist approach to nutrition, right? We mm-hmm. think of the, like you said, the protein, Macros. fat, vitamins, minerals. Yes. And these appear on our food labels and that is what we think of as, as a food source. But food sources in a natural state may contain up to ten thousands of, uh, of unique it's, metabolites. It's mind blowing, isn't it? I mean, that's just like it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, it is. And 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 this reductionist approach, these single nutrients uh, and single food studies, right? That's that's mostly, and that's also, I think, why we have often have these discussions about uh, these these sort of black and white discussions, like oh, saturated fat is bad, or meat is bad, or. or Plants are good, you know, and it is much more more complicated, uh, much more complicated than that. So, so really taking this this approach, and, and I must say, we're only scratching the surface on on this. Mm-hmm. So, even the, the more I, I dove into this, the more I realized that uh, you know we we know very little about these uh, these these compounds and how complex food sources are, which also means that it's it's hard to replicate uh, mm-hmm. these food sources more and. And we can get into this uh, later, maybe with like alternatives and, and and things like that. If we can replicate the uh, the, the original product that we're, we're trying to do, so yeah, I mean, it is amazing when you think of just the the level of your knowledge base already to get to where you're at, and then to go into this domain and then just feel like you're scratching the surface on this just giant amount of information that's unknown. Really does put things into perspective around that idea of having a bit more wisdom around some of these things, not assuming that we know so much, you know, sometimes it's, especially when the general public listens, it's almost like we think we know we've got all our bases covered, right? We've got the macros, we've got the calories, everything else. And obviously yeah. those are big players, but there's still so much to be known. And, you know, you talk about, you know, anti-inflammatory, anti-carcinogenic, cardioprotective properties, and some of these compounds like, you know, terpenoids, phenols, et cetera. And so it is confusing for the, for the public and even for the practitioner, to be honest, around you know, we get these messages that we should be reducing meat consumption for some of the, you know, things that you mentioned there around saturated fat intake. Um, and we have associations that then, you know, propagate these messages, which are 
you yeah. know, one side of group of experts would would say that this is evidence based, and yet you have another side that would say, well, this isn't evidence based. This is, you know, a little bit too myopic. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's definitely a, a now a large concern about both the environmental and human health effects of red meat. And uh, yeah, a lot of this, at least from the human health perspective, is based on epidemiological data where we associate uh, single foods, in this case red meat, with, with deleterious outcomes such as heart disease or, or, or diabetes, obesity, you, uh, you name it, and uh, it has been associated with it. An important part is there is that I think diet quality is... is a, is an important portion there because if you, if you can see in some, on some of these studies like uh, the healthy shopper studies or uh, the Oxford Epic cohort or the Albertus Tomorrow project, what you can see is that once diet quality increases, you see that these associations between red meat and human health largely become neutral. Mm-hmm. So there is obviously this concern with uh, uh, that people that tend to eat more red meat also tend to exercise less, tend to eat less fruits and vegetables, tend to maybe uh, be a general less health, healthy lifestyle factor. So, so those are definitely important nuances to recognize. And, and, and it is often true that, and, and also supported by randomized controlled trials, that when consumed as part of a wholesome diet, potentially also rich in fruits and vegetables, some of these associations may disappear. And, and we know this from mechanistic data too. The combination of, and I think the French were up to something when they drank a glass of uh, red wine with their, with their, with their meat, right? Like, yeah, yeah. In, in, including some of these polyphenols and including the herbs and, and other plant foods, fruits and vegetables, and eating them in combination with meat also can make some of these, these mutagenic compounds or these, uh, they can render them mostly in, ineffective and, and reduce their, their issues. So I don't want to say that there's no potential issue with, uh, with eating red meat, but I do think that diet in which this is consumed is a huge uh, modulating factor. And, and this is not uncommon. This is always mankind where we offset maybe the bad of one food uh, with with the good of another food, right? Mm. Even traditional cultures eating clay with their potatoes, so they get rid of their toxins. I mean, it's, <laughs> you can you can draw that parallel to to red meat and and fruits and vegetables too, where you combine it too, because obviously from animal foods we do get a plethora of uh, of nutrients that are not just beyond zinc, vitamin B, iron, but also some of these. Uh, yeah, these extended compounds, some 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 more uh, complex herpenoids like squalene or cysteamine. Cysteamine, for instance, is an important precursor to glutathione, which is a main antioxidant in yeah, the body. Yeah, and we know about taurine, for instance, and anserine, which are very important for cognitive function and and play a, a central role in in many uh, cellular processes. And these are exclusively found in, in animal source foods and, and especially for, for young children and, and for cognitive development that uh, those things can be important. So while arguably, yes, we can reduce our, our red meat consumption in Western civilization, uh, there, is, there is a need also for, to, uh, to, to make sure that this, is, uh, this yeah, stays balanced and obviously also has to be looked at in the, in the context of overall uh, dietary patterns. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a few things there. One of them is, yeah, I mean, in Europe, if you're in France or Spain or Italy, you're always eating meat with with vegetables, with salads, with veggies, uh, with olive oil, sometimes with a glass of wine. Um, whereas oftentimes, in you know, when we think of the stereotypical North American meal, it's sort of like steak and potatoes. And you know, if you watch any sitcoms, it's always the dad doesn't eat any vegetables at all. And that's kind of the running joke yeah. of trying to get them to eat more vegetables. So there's that whole piece to it. And then there's there's also that that 
part of, of processed versus unprocessed meat, right? I mean, in terms of, of actual, you know, if you're having beef or a steak versus, you know, heavily processed sausage yeah. or hamburger, can you yeah. touch on that and how that changes the story? Absolutely no, Mark. And it's, it's good that you point out that even there, there's a nuance within the processing because even in some associative data, and this is more out of, uh, uh, like for instance, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this cohort in, 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 uh, in, in Morocco and in some other uh, North African and, and Middle Eastern countries where you actually, this is also observational data, but where these traditional uh, processing techniques like uh, salt fermentation versus nitrate curing, for instance, which is what we do uh, generally in, in a sort of a modern industrial setting, but doing more of a of a traditional uh, processing of the meat, it's actually not associated with uh, the, some of these negative health, health outcomes of, of red meat. So, so even there, you could say, yes, processed meat, but are we looking at the meat itself or are we looking at more of these modern processing techniques, right? Because a mm -hmm. lot of these... The more modern techniques that we use, such as nitrate curing or, or some of the additives that we do to, to get this to, in, that are found in processed meats, right? Yeah, those can can alter the, the, the healthfulness of, of the product. And, and most of our, our modern uh, ways of processing are for convenience, their efficiency, but they're not necessarily uh, in the best interest of our health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think to your point, you know, previously around, you know, when we talk about we do need to consume less red meat, let's say, I mean, if we think about all the factory farming and all the, you know, that's being used for, for, for fast food. And, you know, when I think of places to start where we're two groups that are not in agreement can find a point of agreement, you'd think that whether you're a vegan plant-based or whether you're, I don't know, carnivore or paleo, you, you can sort of agree that, Hey, you know, the f factory farming and the way that we're treating animals there and even the quality, if you're strictly just, Let's let's, for lack of a better term, call it selfish, and say the quality of what you're getting is also, you know, poor and substandard, right? Yeah, no, that, that, that is true. And 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 to get back on some of the the findings that we made, and and this is often not recognized when we talk about grass fat versus green fat meat. It's it's myopically focused on on omega three fatty acids, mm -hmm. conjugated linoleic acids, and. Admittedly, there are some differences there too, but once you really look at this extended pool of phytonutrients, uh, such as terpenoids, polyphenols, carotenoids, tocopherols, things that people often think of are exclusive to the, plants, to the plant right? kingdom. You, say, yeah, those, that's you right. say those terms and you just think plants think right off plants, the bat. Yes, exactly. And I was, must admit, also I was initially a little bit surprised when I, when I looked at our data and I was, I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of plant compounds in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's double check on this, on this data. I did, uh, did some grass sneak in there, but yeah. uh, no, the grass snuck into the, to the animal, obviously. And, and what we noticed was is that some of these these compounds that have no known health effects, they are actually upcycled into into the meat of of the animal. And and for instance, if you if you look at the at, at terpenoids, for instance, we know that all sixty percent of all natural products that occur in, are, are are terpenoids, and and these are, are things that have, uh, like I said, anti-carcinogenic uh, effects, anti-diabetic effects. And what we actually found was that these occur in, in substantial amounts in, uh, in, in the, in the grass-fed meat. And mm -hmm. uh, they often remain indetectable in, uh, in, in grain-fed meat or are at least much lower. And, and it's the same found in, in milk. And then I, when I went back into that literature, I actually found a large body of literature, especially done in France, and some of it was in French, but okay, nice. that already established. Yeah, that's the golden rule in science, right? If you can think of it, there's a good chance someone else has thought of it too and, and, and has found <laughs> nice. it in some, some other way. 
actually also found that uh, there that's really when you see start seeing these large differences where uh, think of it is that one of the farmers that we work with uh, their animals they consume about 100 different plant species to 150. Wow. And a lot of plants that we cannot access, right? Grasses, forbs, shrubs. And so, so these are some of these important nuances when people say, well, why don't I just eat plants to get phytonutrients? It's a little bit of a black box at the moment, but one of the things that we should think about is that we can access phytonutrients potentially through that middleman, the animal, mm-hmm. whether we consume it as, as meat or dairy. We can access phytonutrients that maybe perhaps we are un- otherwise unable to readily access when we consume uh, meat that was raised on, on phytochemically diverse uh, pastures. And, and there's also some work to suggest that when animals, and this is obviously what, what often people think of, is that this healthy soil, healthy uh, animals, healthy humans connection. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of data to suggest that right now. Okay. And things that we're working on, but there is some data to suggest that if animals graze on nutrient-rich soils, that uh, the actual uh, nutrient composition, such as uh, even the B vitamins, such as uh, riboflavin and, and thiamine, can be higher in, uh, in in these products. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, in reading your paper, I think one of the lines around the amount of plants that there are, you know, I don't know if it was North America or, you know, the, in the thousands and tens of thousands, and then the amount that humans can actually break down and, and digest effectively. I mean, it's just minuscule compared to all the various types of, of vegetation. And then you think, to your point, you know, over millions of years of evolution, we have this middleman who four stomachs helps as well, right? You've got these ruminants who are taking up these, you know, chewing on grass for 12, 14, 16 hours a day and able to upcycle these things. And so can you touch on that, just that that biological circle and how, you know, and today there's, again, absolutely benefits to reducing meat intake, but, but there's a narrative around uh, you know, the Eat Lancet study, and, and we just need to go completely plant-based, and that's going to solve all of our problems. Yeah. Um, you know, the pendulum seems to really swing from one side to the other versus yeah. trying to get into the nuance. Can you talk about that? It, it, is, often, it is often black and white, these messages, yeah, and that, that, that's what makes it, uh, makes it hard. Though I must say, uh, uh, I think also, well, I cannot speak per se for Eat Lancet, but I do think they see some role for, for regenerative agriculture and integrated uh, crop livestock systems uh, based on some, some recent conversations uh, with, mm. uh, with some individuals involved. But, but, but in any case, yes, I, I mean, th- those are important things, and, and it, it's not per se that uh, we have to use every bit of land or, or for, for grazing. And, I, and another thing I want to highlight is that we, the idea that nature and agriculture are somehow separate entities, I think, is also something we should, uh, we, we should move away from and, uh, in that case. But, but what I think is, is important that, uh, uh, and we see with some of the farmers that, uh, that we work with, they're able to cut costs by, by integrating crop and, and livestock systems using modern technologies. Because we, we went to monocultured systems where we, uh, farmer A would produce corn, farmer B would produce grain uh, or, or wheat, and, and the other farmer would produce dairy, the other farmer would produce meat, but actually trying to integrating this and reestablishing these linkages can help both, I think, livestock production and crop production if we integrate these in, into modern uh, farming systems. And that is really uh, what, what regenerative agriculture is, is built around. It's, it's nutrient recycling by having manure from animals, uh, fertilize the plants, we can reduce uh, pesticides uh, that way, we can reduce uh, external uh, fossil fuel derived Big one. inputs, yeah, such as, such as fertilizers, there's self-sustainability of feedstuff where, we, where the animals can graze uh, the crop residue. So these are ways in which this, this can be incorporated so it, it doesn't have to be per se crop or animal farming uh, per se. 
and in the same in the same uh, vein, uh, there's synergy between maybe plant and and animal production. But in the same vein, there's also synergy for humans in consuming both plants and animal foods, providing different but also uh, uh, synergistic nutrients. Yeah, it's it's amazing how it becomes a, this dichotomy of almost like you're going to eat only plants or you're only going to eat animal protein, you know, which is sort of ridiculous because we're by nature omnivores and virtually everyone on the planet is an omnivore. And so we get into these discussions and, you know, I like the nuance around, you know, in your work, being able to really dig deeper into that around just how many phytochemicals we're talking about and how yeah, there's just yes, so much and, we don't know how yeah. interconnected it really is. And it's, you know. It, it is true because even if you think of something like uh, like a plant uh, or think of like, like a soybean or, or a beef, they contain an estimated, and, and I think, like I said, we're still stressing service, but an estimated over more than 50,000 unique metabolites, right? So to think that that one is a good a replacement for the other. Big label on the bottle for that one. Yeah, you need <laughs> a big label on the bottle for that one. And, and that's why if we, if we put them on the label of, uh, of, some, of the, some of the novel alternatives, then yeah, I, I, I do have some, some concern whether they, uh, you know, if, if you look at a very reductionist way, then yes, they would represent adequate replacements. And yes, we do get maybe our, our essential nutrients in, but we know that all these other nutrients play important roles and, and that it's sort of a band-aid approach, right? And uh, uh, we wanna optimize our, uh, our, our intakes and, and get the full complement of, uh, of all biochemicals and phytochemicals found in foods that we know have uh, important uh, regulatory roles in physiology and our, our human health. Absolutely. And you know, do you, in your work, are you seeing that more now with farmers who are obviously with the, the groups that you're working with around the notion of being able to, uh, as you mentioned, reduce costs, but then start to produce, you know, multiple different types of, of things on one farm and, and go about things that way? Absolutely. Yeah. So some of the, the farmers that we work with here in the U.S. and they definitely uh, uh, and, and some of these groups are, for instance, understanding ag where we work with and, and some local farmers uh, that we hopefully start to work with pretty soon in North Carolina, too, because we have a big pasture based uh, system here and, and very supportive. But yes, what a lot of these farmers do is they, they indeed stack various enterprises on top of each other where they produce crops, they produce they have multi-species livestock operations uh, where they uh, maybe integrate beef with uh, uh, smaller animals like goats or sheep and, and chickens and, and pigs. And they sort of rotate around, uh, around the land with, uh, with animals uh, following each other. So yeah, you're stacking enterprises on, uh, on, on multiple uh, pieces of land and, and that a, it mimics agroecological principles, right? It mimics nature because mm -hmm. nature has introduced a wide variety of herbivores into uh, into ecosystems. Yeah. And we always uh, see large herbivores, smaller herbivores, uh, monogastrics. So, so yeah, it, that is one of the things that we're we're looking at, and we are very interested in linking this connection between uh, soil health, plant diversity, and human health, because I I do think that uh, that connection uh, needs to be made. And, uh, and there's an upscaling of, of, of phytonutrients, like I said, what we see in our work where, yeah, we see these increases of like 10, 20 fold uh, higher phytonutrients. So that's also why when we, when we compare, let's say in this case, meat from different production systems, 
then yeah, that's really where you see these large differences in, in these phytonutrients. And that they are important, I think, is, is important to note because I certainly don't want to say that, make the claim here that we should eat meat for all our phytonutrients or something like that. And there's mm. no benefit to plants. But it's important to note that some of these phytonutrients, they do occur in, in amounts that are maybe even comparable to some uh, to some plant foods like uh, chlorogenic acid or, or gallic acid and, and, and these things. Yeah, they are found in substantial amounts in, in plant foods and in, in cases they might rival some of the, or I should say in meat, and they might rival some of the amounts found in plant foods. And then on, on top of that, I want to say, like I said, we are accessing a, a variety of nutrients that way that can both uh, uh, yeah, benefit human health and also uh, animal health. Yeah, I mean, if we circle back to the discussion around you know human health and the fact that at the moment, two thirds of the population are overweight or obese. We've got, you know, pre-diabetes, diabetes is just chronic systemic inflammation impacting, you know, people's health. And then with that inflammatory noise in the background, you know, the signal of, of exercise and the signal of good diets, is, it's harder to hear. And so yeah. you know, could you talk a bit about, again, the benefits when we look at some of the, the grass fed versus the feedlot on, on how this can even impact some of these markers of, of infl- inflammation? Yes, absolutely, and that's very much a black box at the moment, uh, Marcus. There, on paper, uh, we definitely see that the phytochemical richness of, of grass-fed meat uh, is, is much higher than grain-fed meat, and, and on paper, it looks much healthier. But unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of work right now in humans to uh, to confirm that. One study that is often cited in favor of this is a, is a kangaroo study from Australia where they compared kangaroo grazed on native pastures. It's okay. a wild kangaroo. They obviously consume uh, whatever they want. So, yeah, there you so go. They're, they're free range <laughs> animals, right? In the true form. And, and they compared it to Wagyu beef, which is uh, yeah. grain finished beef that, uh, that is uh, uh, yeah, especially known to be, to be fatty and, and shows some signs of early metabolic disease like uh, we would see in, in humans too uh, yeah. from some of, uh, some of that work that, uh, that has been done on that. So there they found, uh, the authors found a dampening of inflammation right after the meal, after consuming kangaroo. But as you can already imagine, the animal was confounded there because it's kangaroo versus beef. And mm. the kangaroo was likely leaner than the beef, even though they cut out the fat uh, mm. from both the steaks. Uh, this was probably an, an issue. And then another study, and again, a lot of it has been done in Europe, uh, of, of uh, grass-fed uh, dairy, cheese in this case, from sheep grazed on mountain pastures. Mountain pastures are very well known to be uh, phytochemically rich and, and have a large plant diversity. Uh, it was found that uh, consuming uh, 200 grams or half a pound a week also dampened inflammation compared to uh, grain fat cheese. Mm-hmm. But then again, there's also been work done at Texas A&M that showed that eating four grass-fed patties versus four grain-fed patties a week did not show a difference. Uh, some work been done with, with butter, again, in Europe, not showing a difference. So it is very much mixed, and, and that sums also sums up about those studies, sum up the majority of our knowledge. So as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot of knowledge right now to suggest that uh, we can at least directly say that, that grass-fed meat is, is, is healthier to consume. And, and coming back to your point, Mark, about uh, uh, some of these nuances and details, like, like I said, with uh, the reason why we earn this uh, crisis of obesity and, and, and diabetes is obviously not because we're consuming, not consuming grass-fed meat and we're consuming mm-hmm. grain-fed meat, right? It's, it's the overall diet quality that uh, that we should uh, keep keep in mind. And uh, in this case, 
an interesting study that hopefully we can perform in, in the future is looking at what if you consume all your foods from, from a pasture-based uh, model or what if you consume all your foods from a regenerative agricultural model where maybe we increase the nutrient density of, uh, of your food. Uh, that is important, but, but we should also definitely focus heavily on improving people's uh, dietary quality, uh, irrespective of what we're talking plant or animal. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you, you know, if we took a North American population, if you just feed people more real food, then you, if, if somebody is overweight, then you're going to see weight loss because caloric intake is going to go down. You're going to get improvements in glucose control. Inflammation is going to come down. And so, you know, I can appreciate if we just swap one thing out of the diet, you know, as you mentioned, some of these studies, we're not seeing it, but, but as you mentioned that kind of, if we look at it from 30,000 feet, if we're eating more real food, um, yeah. then we're likely going to get those effects. And, you know, to your point, we look at Spain, I mean, they're going to be the longest living people by, what is it, 2050? And, you know, they consume above the 10% saturated fat mark. The French consume above it. I mean, these are all populations that live longer and have fewer heart attacks than, than the recommendations that we're, we're getting. And so that notion around diet quality, you know, can you talk a bit about, you know, saturated fats and, 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 that, and that importance of diet quality, how that becomes a yeah, the, the, part of that story? Yes, for sure. I mean, even within saturated fat, some of these associations, if you look at more whole food sources like dairy or, or, or beef or chocolate for that matter, some of these associations, when you look at the whole food sources of saturated fat, then again, you, you start to see that these associations largely become neutral. So those are important things to, to know too, that, that definitely the matrix in which these are consumed, that we refer to as the food matrix, that, that is definitely important to, to highlight. And, and therefore, like messages of saturated fat are bad per se, obviously, are, are a little bit more nuanced. But then again, in, in, on the other hand, I mean, maybe current intakes of especially like very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids like omega-3s, right? There, there we generally see a benefit when, uh, when you substitute those uh, so mm-hmm. for instance fish eaters but at some point yeah that is also gonna top out but that's also think why now with these with associative data you can generally see some of these uh, these advantages for, uh, for swapping out saturated fat with more and more unsaturated fats but but like you like you point out in the in the, in the span spanish and the french then uh, yes there's definitely a paradox there there is and even just the saturated fat from junk food i mean that always seems to sort of get a pass in terms of all you know there's the tonnage of when you look at the intakes of saturated fat in these countries i mean the vast majority is coming from processed junk food which which sort of seems to get a pass almost or you sort of just you know yeah. and then we focus on a food that has you know the, the protein quality the, the obviously the micronutrients now we're talking phytochemicals yeah um and so on that bigger picture of diet quality it does, it does become a bit of a i guess i just for the general public it just becomes a distraction because you see so many people that come in that are avoiding foods like i don't want to eat steak so i'm going to go for this other alternative and it happens to be this pre-prepared um you know processed calorically rich carbohydrate written and it's like oh we're, we're, yeah. we're making things worse than easier by the explanations yeah. that we're giving to folks you know yeah i agree it's the reductionist approach to nutrition and and it's reductionist messaging and and always associating single foods or or single uh, uh, nutrients without respect to like like diet quality and and linking those to uh to health outcomes i, I think it's definitely problematic and there's a shift now slowly mm-hmm. towards more dietary patterns or where where uh, also in in, the, in in my field, uh, scientists realize that we, we should study uh, dietary patterns. And you also see it with the dietary guidelines for Americans that there's more attention being paid now to dietary patterns where we, where we talk about like either we talk about you know Mediterranean diets, Okinawan diets, or, or you name it, traditional mm-hmm. Nordic diets. What do all these diets have in common? 
despite the fact that they are very much different, what they have in common is that the diet quality is high. They don't eat crap. Or they eat very yeah. little of it. <laughs> yeah, what we make is very complicated, but in reality, it is, it is very simple. Uh, the message only is yeah how you get people to do that obviously with, yeah, uh, with an abundance of uh, yeah and and, all, and it, it is hard and I also don't think it's because of weakness of people there is just so no. much abundance of, of of processed foods and with marketing and and messaging yeah you you just generally see that that you're being bombarded with it and and, yeah, and that's man. obviously uh, hard even even you know subconsciously you're uh, making yeah, decisions I mean, people are working long hours they're not sleeping they're stressed and it's like of course you're gonna you know you're surrounded by all these options and unfortunately it's the default option for most people and circling back to something you mentioned there before i mean one of the reasons around the european side i always feel like it's in north america it's easier for us to get swayed by the different dietary fads because we're although there's obviously a lot of second generation we don't have that really strong cultural yeah, you know, like it's hard to change things in Spain or Italy when people are just this is the way we eat and this is you know, <laughs> we'll yeah. we'll listen to a little bit of that, but we're still going to do what we do. Um, yeah, and, and you see that holds a little stronger. Whereas in North America, we tend to be a bit more open to you know this diet or that diet, and you know to the expense of then being infiltrated with with just more processed food becoming sort of just a, the norm. You know, I guess yeah, that's no, a, yeah, yeah. We we are currently running a, a randomized controlled trial where we're. Uh, looking at a more of a whole foods-based dietary pattern uh, versus a processed food dietary pattern. And we, we're, uh, the study is fairly new. We started it. Uh, we had to shut it down because of COVID for a while. Oh, um, so we, we, we started up again in October and we we're finishing our first participants. But uh, yeah, we're looking at it from an energy balance standpoint because I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with Kevin Hall's work at the NIH that mm -hmm. showed that people, if, they, if you give them uh, processed foods, they overeat. And that's mm -hmm. largely why people think that processed foods are bad. Well, what happens if you consume in a managing balance uh, and, and you maintain weight? They still are they de facto bad for our health, or it, it, does it uh, have to do with the fact that we overeat them? And I mean, obviously, we know that uh, the nutrient density is going to be compromised. So, so overall, if you eat it for maybe uh, 25 to 30 years, then yeah, you're definitely selling yourself short on some of these compounds that we talked about today, right? Like this, this extended, because mm. you can take a, a multivitamin pill and get the same amount of vitamins and, and, and minerals on, on a, uh, sort of a processed food diet that is not very nutrient dense or, or you consume these as, as part of like fortified foods but obviously we have to look at this this sort of this whole food matrix approach where we start appreciating the complexity of foods in their natural state mm -hmm. i mean it's fascinating and one of the things i think about is around even young athletes around the fact that they're very fit um, they do a lot of exercise, but oftentimes they don't eat very diverse diets or very quote unquote healthy diets, but just the, you know, the amount of exercise, you know, building muscle mass, like these are really powerful signals that, that really helps offset. And, um, you know, I, th I think one could get away with eating more of a lesser nutrient dense processed food diet if they stayed fitter and everything else. It's just, it's just a, it's a really thin line to, to walk when you're, you know, especially getting into middle midlife and you're not exercising as much like that's things can go wrong pretty quick. Right. Absolutely. But even, even from that uh, standpoint, Mark, we, some of our uh, work has found that uh, if you consume whole eggs versus egg whites, mm -hmm. uh, match for protein that you actually, and coming back to the athletes, this was done in, in uh, uh, young resistance strength athletes and young, I mean, in their early twenties uh, that we found that if you consume the same amount of protein from egg whites or whole eggs, you actually get a higher muscle anabolic response with whole eggs, which again, was was not per se explained by the amino acid composition which is very similar but it's explained 
by these extended pool of nutrients that are found in the egg yolk. Several, obviously, vitamins, minerals, but also bioactive peptides that we know play an, uh, an important role in, in, in signaling and in, in, in intermediary, as intermediaries to, to muscle protein synthesis. So, and, and pulling that back to uh, some of the other diet in general, when obviously when you're microdosing these extended pool of phytochemicals or biochemicals over maybe a 20, 30 year lifetime, like you said, when you come to middle age, then yes, these things I think are going to matter. It will be yeah. very hard to prove in a human model that eating a, obviously we cannot do randomized controlled trials. We have associative data, but at least from, from mechanistic in vitro data, which we can pull towards maybe, you know, at least try to interpret in, in the light of humans. But you could say that, hey, if we microdose these these phytochemicals for 20 to 30 years, then we are probably reducing our, our rates of, of cancer and, and cardiovascular disease. I mean, an, an interesting uh, study that came out the other day was, this was an in vitro model. If you treat cancer, a, a line of cancer cells with phytochemically enriched milk, versus more milk that's from grain-fed animals, you see that the viability of this cancer cell line is reduced. So there's less uh, cancer pr- proliferation with these, with these phytochemicals if you just, you know, uh, mm. put some milk on these cells. Now, I don't want to say that per se this, this works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we cannot say this works on the humans, yeah. but, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it, we, into we, the spirit we, of what's going on. Into the spirit of what's going on there, there's a, a possibility indeed that higher dietary quality and, and microdosing these, these, these biochemicals and phytonutrients over a lifetime, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, reduces your risk of chronic disease later on in, uh, in life. And, uh, and, and maybe you can get away with it at a younger age, but yes, definitely in the, in the later decades of life where you start losing muscle mass and you start to become more prone to... Uh, Inflammation to, uh, and yeah. arthritis. And, and I was going to say, you know, Stefan, for, for, for a researcher, you know, how, what lens how, do you view this in when you, yeah, you, we need to look at things over decades, multiple decades, yet you can't, you can't run a trial for 20. Yep. You know, how, so how, how do you parse that out when you're trying to, you know, we have, again, you have, you have these concepts or mechanisms and, you know, this appreciation for how this is going to support health, but then from a, you know, purely scientific standpoint, you know, when you're trying to, to make the points you're trying to make or uncover, you know, prove the hypotheses, how, how do you map these things out? Yeah, I think we need to look at it from, from multiple lines of evidence. So we have population-based data, epidemiological data, then we have randomized controlled trials, then we uh, go further down the line and we can look at the animal data and, and even the in vitro or cell data, right? And if all these point towards the same direction, then I think at some point we can we can confidently say that uh, something is, 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 you know, potentially really bad for our health and, and sort of proven beyond uh, reasonable doubt. And so I, I, that's how I how I try to, or at least many of us in, in research try to, in academia, try to navigate this and, and, and coming back to the point of, of dietary quality and then some of these associations of single foods, right, is that uh, if, if we take the, let's take the example of, of red meat, heavily associated with, uh, with, with every disease under the sun in epidemiological data, then if we look at some randomized controlled trials that are shorter term, maybe uh, 8 to, 10 to 12 weeks in length, if we consume red meat as part of like a Mediterranean diet or another high quality diet, then we generally don't see these negative effects. If we look at the in vitro cell data, if we consume, if we put some herbs or some other phytochemicals on, on meat in an in vitro model, we see that some of maybe these, these 
bacterious compounds are not not formed. To your point is that yeah, if, if everything points in the same direction, then I think we can we can confidently say. But I also think in nutrition that we should just be more open about acknowledging when we don't know something, because even within dietary guidelines, I I, I don't see obviously we have to give some guidance, but we should also be able to just say, uh, admittedly, gracefully, uh, you know, admit that there is uncertainty about these things and that we just are not 100% sure. And I think uh, that that's important to to, to note. And, and and especially in the, in the field of academia, there's a, always a risk to fall into this uh, dichotomies, into these dichotomies and where you sort of, you know, start to align with a certain uh, certain viewpoint where it's hard to get out of it, right? Yeah, if, yeah. 20 years, for 20 years you showed you this. You trench and, and now all of a sudden you're like, Jesus, yeah, get out of here. Yeah, it's hard, yeah, when you dug, dug yourself into a certain trench and, and you can't get out of it. I mean, that's, that, that, is, that is hard. So I think uh, for that reason, it is always important to recognize these nuances and, and just to try to do our best and, and also admit when we're not 100% sure about things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how they convey the recommendations because for such a long time, they were conveyed in such a, a manner that no regular person could ever appreciate, you know, th- this amount of servings of, of whether it's vegetable, whether it's carbohydrate, like, it, you know, now we've gone to the plate system and it's it's just more visual. I mean, people are, again, so busy in their day-to-day lives that when the explanation gets so long, they just tune out and it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe next year I'll, I'll come back to this. You know, it's like, we've got to be able to get the message to people in a way that's you know, digestible and actionable to just get the ball rolling so that they can choose to go deeper versus, you know, sometimes I feel like we give them all this information and it, it's tough to digest, right? Yeah. And also when you start looking at like the single nutrients or single foods, like, like we talked about earlier is that it gets very complicated for people, but the message itself is very simple. I mean, choose a, a, a diet, mostly rich in unprocessed foods, uh, mm. a moderate amount of animal foods, uh, plant foods, and uh, you're well on your way and you can adopt it towards your tasting, your liking, your cultural traditions, right? Yeah. What we spoke about earlier is that if you look at dietary studies around the world, what do humans have in common is that they consume both plant and animal foods and they can vary widely based on the geographical region, but these healthy diets all have in common, whether it's Okinawans, whether it's the the, the Sardinians, whether it's... uh, People in the Nordic countries, in Spain, and the diet quality is high, and that's uh, it's it's mostly on unprocessed food. So I think that's uh, something we should, uh, yeah, definitely in the, in the future uh, uh, start to pay more more attention to. Because if you think about this also from and, and to look at this from a sustainability standpoint, right? Like, and these are the externalized costs of food. Yes, they are very cheap, right? And these costs don't appear on our grocery bills. But you and I, or anyone in society, they have to be paid for eventually. So we don't mm. see them on our food bill, but we do see them in like cleaning up water supplies, our healthcare costs, uh, mm. uh, our taxes. Right? We, one way or another, uh, the consumer will pay for it. So yep. I think those are also important things to start recognizing: the externalized cost of foods that, that do not appear on your food bill. We we tend to choose cheap foods, but it does not always reflect the true price for society. Oh yeah, I mean <laughs> definitely, and uh, you know I like the message you you said there around the diet suggestions and how you you start from this place of unprocessed food and then you can tailor it to your your goals and your background. I mean that's that's an empowering message for people that helps to guide them down the road. Versus you know it can sometimes feel like we're giving people a bunch of rules to follow, and it's like when we look at that you know performance psychologists and and mental performance yeah. coaches, I mean, that's not the best way to go about things. And so I really appreciate that you know that type of message and Stefan. 
I mean, I really want to appreciate uh, respect your time here today. Any other, you know, in terms of your research around this topic, are there some other key insights you've had over over the years of doing this, or you know, in your work that you're currently doing? That's you know, things that you're thinking about or future directions to some of this research. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're very interested in uh, in linking some of this uh, uh, work uh, that we're doing on on this pasteurized meat and linking this to soil health and linking this to uh, plant diversity and and seeing how these are all related, right? Like for instance, we uh, we look at does increase soil health, plant health, and does it improve uh, the healthfulness for humans to consume. And this is not only just about meat, but it's also plant uh, foods plants, too. Plants as well, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like I said, we should not view these as two separate entities somehow. And and some of the farmers we work with, they grow peas and they grow corn, and and it would be interesting to see if these systems that are all interlinked and that. These, uh, through nutrient recycling, can we increase both the healthfulness of animal foods and plant foods while decreasing the external input at the same time? Mm. And and that will be, I think, a very that uh, is a very exciting research topic that uh, that we're working on. And but at the same time, we're also working uh, on on evaluating some of these novel alternatives. Like we we did a recent metabolomics comparison where we compared a popular plant-based meat alternative with beef. Mm-hmm look at because uh, the, the nutrient facts panel suggests that you can get similar nutrients from it but mm-hmm. again we are looking at a reductionist approach here right where mm-hmm. we look at protein fat uh, several vitamins and minerals or five or six or eight things right e- exactly exactly and then they look they look the same but what what happens when we uh, peel back the onion layer so we run some metabolomics on those two and yeah they are not night and day different. I mean, we, we run an unsupervised principal component analysis on it, which is basically means that you uh, put the data in a model and, and data tries to cluster itself. And what we see is all the beef on one side of the graph and all the, the, the plant alternatives on the other side. So yeah. there's a large difference. And I think we should, uh, we should start, to, yeah, start to appreciate that and that these may be complementary and they can provide us key nutrients, but they should also be, be viewed as complementary in uh, in our diet. And yeah, I mean that that market will grow, right? I mean it's 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 inevitable. It will it will grow. And the same with uh, with cellular meats. I mean, I, again, how are we going to replicate the phytochemical richness? I'm not sure. But if, if it helps with uh, with food security, and, and I keep an open mind on uh, yeah. on, on these things too. I mean, technology is inevitable in in food systems. But I do think that we should appreciate uh, these agroecological systems, nature, and then trying to use modern technology to actually work with nature rather than uh, trying to work against nature like uh, like we've often done uh, in, in the past. It, it does feel like intelligence versus wisdom at times, doesn't it? I mean, we're able to do so many highly technical things with technology and everything else, but sometimes, to your point, being able to kind of zoom out a little bit to just have that wisdom to say, okay, well, wait a minute. How do, how do we how do we mesh these two together rather than just think because even as someone who was vegan 20 years ago I mean back then yeah. you had to I had to actually eat rice and lentils you know you couldn't eat yeah. soy dogs and burgers and whatever <laughs> yeah. else so you had to just eat real vegetables and so it's amazing how the processed food is sort of coming on to the, the plant-based world as it yeah. did the meat-based yeah. world you know 30 years ago. Yeah, and I don't know if we have the full wisdom, right? Because we we pay dietitians and uh, we have dietary guidelines telling us what to eat. But an animal, you don't have to tell an animal yeah, what to yeah, eat. So, yeah, exactly. so who's the wise one out of uh, out of That's us, it, right? right? So, and, and, like, and, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, like the tiger and the leopard doesn't need a, a warm up. You know, they're, they're good to go. 
uh, good to go. And you also, they also don't need to be told what uh, what to eat, whereas we as as humans do. And uh, so, yeah, those are those are important things to realize. And uh, and, and I, I do think we still have that innate response where we sort of intuitively know we do intuitively know what, which foods we should eat and what is healthy for us and what is not healthy for us, right? We, we create the situation where it's it's really hard to uh, to sort of follow those uh, those instincts, where it's, uh, it, it's it's a gift and a curse where you can rationalize. Mm, yeah, the message is definitely get scrambled today with uh, our modern environment. And, you know, I, I could pick your brain here all, all day, Stefan, and I want to respect your time. So a key message to leave for listeners, for viewers uh, around around this topic. I mean, I know it's obviously very nuanced and we talk about 50,000 different phytochemicals or potential nutrients in a food. What, what's the message that you would give you know, around this topic? Yeah, that, that that I would say around this topic of phytonutrients or, or foods in, in, in general would say like mostly focus on whole foods. And when we look at, for instance, a, a grass-fed meat or milk, if you are able to afford this, I would say that, that, that obviously the power of the dollar or, or it, is powerful. And if you can support this, I would definitely do so. Mm-hmm. But beef and or meat and milk, irrespective of how it was produced, provides key nutrients because I also don't want to steer people away from uh, mm-hmm. from from these uh, these foods per se. That especially at, at certain stages of life, like in young children and, and in older age, yeah. these are, are are key important. So so these are important nuances uh, to to recognize that yes, it is important and it looks more phytochemically rich and it's, it might be healthier to consume, but you should also. Uh, buy what's what you can afford awesome listen appreciate you uh taking the time today i mean this is a really really fascinating uh area we'll, we'll include the links to uh, the papers and the, and the show notes and you know where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work uh on my my twitter is uh, is uh, at fanfleet phd mm-hmm. uh, spelled as my last name and then uh also my google scholar profile which uh, you can you can find by just typing in google scholar and my name or typing in uh, my name Stefan van Vliet and Duke and you'll see several links appearing with uh, with some of my uh, some of our work that has been published and uh, post all my work on, on Twitter and where possible I always try to uh, pay for open access so that everyone can read it that's another negative part about science that it's, yeah, it's sometimes the gay walls right yeah exactly so. Especially in this day and age of fake news, we need as much free open access as we can get, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. So, so we always uh, always try to uh, try to do that, and uh, so that's where working people can find me. Awesome, man. Listen, appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll definitely keep up with uh, with all your fantastic work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to watch the full video interview, then please head over to YouTube the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel, and you can check out the full video interview as well as clips of this and future interviews. This episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education. Athlete Evolution is excited to announce the launching of the first ever American football performance nutrition course, first of its kind in the industry, led by experts in collegiate and professional football, so if you're a coach, practitioner out there, athlete wanting to upskill your performance nutrition knowledge in the realm of American football, then definitely head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org for more information. Until next time.
The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.